say I have no reasons for leaving. You say I have nowhere to go. You say I have not one good reason, but reasons are all that I. Hello and welcome to episode four of Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn, and today we're going to examine the most philosophical of all philosophical tools. And this is a tool that most philosophers stake their entire lives upon the tool of reason. Now, it doesn't take a Socrates to figure out that there may be some kind of connection between all these tools of knowledge that I was offering last episode and reason. In that the process of acquiring good knowledge very often entails using logic to determine truth from falsity, consistency from inconsistency, and contradiction from non-contradiction. But actually, I won't be talking too much about this classical form of reason, because it's rather trivial and straightforward and obvious. So I'm just going to briefly point out three major logical fallacies that spiritual but not religious people must become aware of and attempt to jettison from their lives. These are contradictions, confirmation biases, and associative fallacies. But the heart of this episode. Is actually more an exploration of where the limits of reason might be, which amounts to a kind of discovering what reason can and can't do for spiritual people. And actually, this is rather tricky and interesting, and easy to get lost in. Now, as I'm sure at least some of you know, reason can often be highly denigrated these days. And I don't just mean by politicians, who seem to take it as a given that we, as in we the people, don't know how to reason. I mean denigrated by a lot of smart theorists, who have associated reason with things like patriarchy and colonialism and power relations and any other number of pernicious things. So in some places. Reason has been virtually strawmanned right out of existence, alongside the whole canon of Western philosophy, up to and including the Enlightenment, which so celebrated reason. Now, we don't really need to go into these kinds of issues. I think this is definitely a topic for another time, but I do want to put my cards firmly on the table and say that reason must be defended. And it must be defended against these kinds of critiques. And actually, we don't need to go too deeply into the question of what reason is, and how it actually works. We don't really need to dwell on the rules of classical or formal logic, which are kind of interesting, but I'm pretty sure would make for a rather dry podcast episode. I think that where we need to start. Is with a basic sense of what logical fallacies are, 
and in particular which ones are most important to understand and how they may cripple or even torpedo our spiritual but not religious lives. Now, the most savage of all logical fallacies is the dreaded contradiction. To put simply, and it's not a simple matter, but to put it simply, if X, then Y can't be. Therefore, if you say XY, that is a contradiction. Because X and Y have been predicated as mutually exclusive. Now, unless you develop into a Spock from Star Trek, you're probably going to embody more than a few of these contradictions in your daily lives in your thinking and in your actions. And I actually think that's healthy. One should not be too afraid of contradictions. But one must try to become aware of them. And if they are damaging, to mitigate them in some way or another. Contradictions are easiest to find in language. So if you're writing something, or arguing a case in the court of law, you have to be very, very, very careful of contradictions. These are really your primary enemy. But if you're just a normal person, they're not so much of a problem. They're a part of life. And to vanquish all contradictions from your life is to morph into some kind of algorithmic neoliberal robot. Not fun. Not wise. And I dare say the very antithesis of spiritual life. And I'll talk a little bit about this a little later on in the episode. So whilst we need not worry about becoming the perfect exemplar of rationality, we do have to be very careful about contradictions within our core values and contradictions between our core values and how we actually live. And these are two quite distinct things. So let's move into an example. Let's say, for instance, you've gone and read the Satipatthana Sutta, which we've talked about a bit through the series. And you've maybe even found a mindfulness instructor. So you have a kind of deep inner commitment to cultivating more mindfulness and awareness and tranquility and concentration in your life. So for that reason, you meditate quite a lot. But you also like having fun. And as part of having fun, you like to get wildly drunk rather a lot, which in reality does destroy your mindfulness. Now, this could be a contradiction between two different core values that you are deeply committed to. On the one hand, developing mindfulness, and on the other, pursuing hedonistic pleasure, which takes the form of intoxicants. Or it could be a contradiction between your core values and how you actually live. So, for example, your core values are really around mental health and happiness and awareness. So connected to all of this is a kind of practice of mindfulness. But these are different from what actually takes place in your social life from what your friends do. So in reality, you tend to practice hedonism instead of mindfulness. So to notice contradictions of these kinds is actually very important. And they may be quite hard to rectify. But they can indeed be resolved 
if and only if you become aware of them. So reason and logic are playing a very robust role in both the process of noticing the contradiction and in the potential resolution to it. So you don't have to be a Spock to sit down and try to nut out how you should square the circle between hedonism and mindfulness. But you will need reason to achieve some kind of resolution to the problem, whatever it might be. Now, I don't want to dwell too much longer on contradictions. I will return to them towards the end of the episode. But it would be remiss of me not to point out that if there are contradictions to be found in any kind of spiritual teaching that you're pursuing, be it written or spoken or sung or even shouted, you must be able to identify exactly where they are. And this is precisely what I meant last episode by the notion of intellectual diligence. Now, pretty much everything has contradictions in it. There's no such thing as a perfect system, even on the ideal level. So it doesn't mean that when you find a contradiction, you can get up on your logical pedestal and just jettison the whole system or tradition. But you do need to be able to see it and work out what to do about it, how to navigate it. Because if you don't see it, then it may be very dangerous and harmful in all kinds of ways. Okay, next problematic logical fallacy. Confirmation bias. I've talked about this already a little bit in episodes two and three. I also said something like, the world is in an epistemological crisis, a crisis of knowledge. Well, if that crisis was a fire, then the actual flames, heat and light is confirmation bias. It is the poison that is doing the damage, the poison we all seem to be in the grip of. So what does it mean? Well, actually, this is more a kind of cognitive perceptual issue than purely a logical issue, but they are clearly connected. Confirmation bias basically just means assenting to firm conclusions on the basis of a prior untested assumption. Which is to say all of your reasoning and thinking and evidence finding is cherry picked to prove your starting position. So it was never really up for debate in the first instance and all contrary evidence is either ignored or rejected without any basis. So you really don't need me to tell you that the world is aflame with this at the moment and that the very structure of the digital world greatly facilitates it. And it is rather hard to get out of. And the major entailment from our side is that if we fall into confirmation bias, then we have firmly left the waters of reason and are instead very probably basing our judgments on sentiments, affections, or libidinal investments. And this is not only the surest path to dogmatism, it is the very bones of dogmatism, its very essence, a sentimental grasping to beliefs. 
You simply cannot move forward if you remain entrapped by confirmation bias. There's no room to transform because your mind has given away the very tools necessary to properly evaluate and discern knowledge and evidence. So it's like hitting that amazing buffet table and unwittingly only eating the old sandwich that you already brought with you. There's no possibility of engaging openly with new things because every new thing merely confirms the solidity and unimpeachability of your old thing. So you're always stuck eating your old sandwich. To get out of confirmation bias is actually quite difficult. And it undoubtedly implies genuine reasoning, the kind of reasoning that is to some degree impartial, able to look at things from many different angles, without necessarily assenting to any particular side. So it's rather like the philosophical scepticism that I talked about in episode 2. But if you can reason in this way, then it does become possible to assent to a particular side and say, look, as far as I can see and determine, this is actually the best side. And I'm going to choose it on the basis of good reasoning. So getting out of it implies, at least to some degree, impartiality. The third logical fallacy that I think we need to discuss is something called an associational fallacy. And this is basically when we connect disparate things together through inferences that actually have no basis. So that is, the inferences that join things together are not actually acts of reasoning, but are merely lazy associations between things that don't really have any justified or meaningful relation. So it's more an act of imagination than an act of reason. And this is usually the ground of prejudice. So, for example, just because one very deluded Muslim person undertook a terrorist action in the name of Islam, when you see another completely unrelated person who happens to be Muslim, you make the ungrounded and faulty association between the two things and come up with a thought which conjoins them. The associational fallacy, Muslim terrorist. Now, a lot of our thinking is often highly associative, which is to say it is very often highly dubious and lacking any real substantive basis. So to root this out as much as possible is simply being prudent about life. It's taking responsibility for your understanding. And I think often our engagement with particular spiritual traditions or techniques depends upon an understanding built up out of many different kinds of associative fallacies. And perhaps it's impossible to avoid this, at least when we're starting out. So, as an example, let's return to yoga. Now, the image of modern yoga, at least as it's presented in the West, is very closely framed around the body. Accomplishing its fitness and health and strength and flexibility and well-being and, let's be honest, aesthetics, looking good. Coupled with this are usually some loose symbols of Indian spirituality with a namaste to start the class and an om to end it and some cool-sounding Sanskrit names in between 
for the posers. So there's often a kind of associative inference built up between bodily beauty and health and well-being and some kind of inner spiritual fulfillment. So there's a kind of associative connotation that mind, body, spirit is kind of unified or harmonized. Now, I'm not saying that these associations are entirely baseless, but I am saying that they are at best rather loose and at worst extremely inconsistent with the authentic tradition of yoga, because it is at its heart a deeply ascetic tradition. It is a tradition which problematizes the way we privilege the body over the mind. A tradition in which bodily poses are really only just one of eight limbs of spiritual practice, and in which there is a very fundamental and intractable dualism between mind and body, or parusha and prakriti. So the associative fallacy builds ungrounded inferences between two things which actually are very disparate in the tradition. Which is to say, the genuine tradition of yoga does not aim to integrate body and mind. It aims to sever one's over-reliance or reification of the body in order to attain the otherwise hidden, true and ontologically immaterial mind. So the associative fallacy is basically an ungrounded inference that joins two things that ought not be joined. And it is at the root of incorrect understanding. And the way out of it is basically the number one tool that I talked about last episode, the tool of intellectual diligence. When you are joining ideas together, you simply must do so out of careful, reasoned examination rather than out of sloppy association. Because the former is an act of imagination and the latter is an act of reason. One leads to ignorance, the other to truth. But as I said at the beginning today, these matters of ordinary logic are actually pretty trivial and rather obvious. So they need to be said, but we need not dwell on them. The basic message is don't leave your logic at the doorstep. Be aware of contradictions and confirmation biases and associational fallacies. Make an effort to iron them out and you'll have a much sharper, more penetrating basis for your spiritual pursuits. Okay, so let's move into the heart of the episode, which I'm describing as the limitations of reason. And there are two quite different senses of this that I want to talk about, which are connected to two very different senses of what reason is. The first sense is actually quite political and sociological and even economic in character. It is the idea that there are forms of reason that in their use deeply oppress and constrain us when we're under their influence, when we're being rationalistic in this way. So what forms are these? How might reason be connected with constraint and oppression? Well, for those of us living in modern industrialized economies and societies, we all need copious amounts of a very particular kind of rationality. Firstly, just to cope, to pay bills and buy groceries and earn wages and fix your computer problem, etc, etc. And secondly, to succeed 
at least materially or vocationally. So this is a form of rationality that is really built around organising our preferences or desires logically. It's what moral philosophers and economists call utility. So utility just means you have a set of preferences which are your basically your desires for different things and you use your reason to organize them such that you can achieve your desires most efficiently. So it's usually connected to a sense of their costs and their benefits. And it's no coincidence that there's a kind of connection between moral philosophy, economics and the kind of political and social conditions that we actually have in industrialized places because theory and reality are entirely conjoined here. Which is to say that the idea of utility promoted by moral philosophers such as David Hume and Jeremy Bentham is more or less the same idea of utility promoted by economists such as Adam Smith and Milton Friedman. And these have become the core organizing principle of modern capitalism and also of modern governance and modern society. Indeed, there still is such a thing. So this kind of rationality becomes the basic structure of our lives in the system we live in. That is, we're logically ordering our preferences as consumers, as employers, as employees, as voters, as ministers and husbands and wives. We're doing it all the time just in order to keep going. So it becomes, kind of a little accidentally, our basic psychology, our basic way of thinking and feeling. And if you stop doing it, the system will basically eat you for breakfast and you'll be spat out the back very, very quickly. And if you do it really well, you'll come out nearer the top with assets and wealth and career success and all the rest. So it's a logic of buying and selling, of producing, of competing, of rating and being rated, of allocating resources, of using the logic of a cost-benefit analysis to order our desires and preferences. And this extends to so many aspects of our lives. And I want to put it to you that living all the time in such a way takes a tremendous toll on us. However efficient and organized it makes us, and however well it enables us to accomplish our desires, to succeed in fulfilling our preferences, it simultaneously makes us rather linear and narrow and boring and intensely unfree. And living in a world where everyone is thinking like this a lot of the time is frankly rather an unpleasant world. It is a world of self-interested rationality. And for all the efficiency, it generates a lot of stress and anxiety. So this is the sense in which it's connected with oppression and constraint. So some philosophers have called this kind of reason instrumental rationality. Reason aimed at very pragmatic and mundane aims. Reason which is fundamentally consequentialist in character, that is outcomes oriented. Now, as I said, 
If you get a sense of this oppression and you cut it off at its root, it could be very damaging because you'll be cutting off the very thing which enables you to function properly in all the numerous markets and jobs and bureaucracies and all the things that are institutionalized in our life. Now I've experimented with this a little bit and I, you have to trust me, you pay a very heavy price to cut it off at the root. So I'm not suggesting that we incapacitate our abilities to use instrumental rationality. What I'm saying is that we need to identify where the limitations of these modes of thinking might be and learn how to switch it on and how to switch it off. And probably most of us already know where this switch is. The weekend is the off switch and the week is the on switch, right? Or holidays off and back to work on. Or big night drinking wine off and morning doing the tax return on. I guess what I'm doing is firmly asserting that spiritual life cannot begin until instrumental rationality is switched to off. And that all the different methods we can find in all the different traditions are really tools to turn off that mindset and find or develop other mindsets. More open ones, more creative or aesthetic ones, more free ones, more joyous ones. So you have to know this, you have to know that the first limitation of reason is precisely here. And it's also simultaneously a limitation of society and economy. And I suspect having some innate sense of this limitation is in fact a very primary impulse for many who are looking for a spiritual life in the first instance. That is, they're trying to find little nuggets of freedom amidst this ever-present mental constraint. So that's the first sense of the limitations of reason. The second sense is far more lofty and exalted. And the kind of reason I'm talking about here is much more abstract and theoretical. The kind of reason which examines and finds answers in physics and cosmology and ontology. Reason that is directed towards understanding the big questions in life. What is life? What is death? What is love, mathematics, what is reality, what is truth, what are numbers? These kinds of questions. So a philosophical kind of reason and also a scientific kind of reason. A reason that pursues true knowledge about the nature of reality. Now, I'm not sure everyone has cultivated this form of reason to the same degree, but I believe everyone has the same kind of capacity too cultivate it. And it is beautiful. Aristotle claims in Book 10 of his Ethics that using this kind of reason, theoria in ancient Greek, is the best possible kind of human life. I won't go into his reasons here, but I loosely agree. The best of humans have this in spades. And actually, as an aside, often their ordinary lives can be a bit chaotic as a, consequence of, as a consequence of privileging this form of reason and neglecting the more instrumental form that I was just speaking about. So I heard a story once about Bertrand Russell, who was one of the great 20th century British philosophers, 
who was unable to make toast, or it might have been tea, it was toast or tea, for his guests. So his mind had gone all the way into the terrain of mathematical logic, such there was no room left for making toast. So in any case, I want to firmly propose that spiritual life demands this form of reason in great spades, and that to some degree, that the cultivation of this kind of reasoning is spiritual life. The two are synonyms. People who really have a thirst for something spiritual in their lives will usually try to quench this thirst through this form of reason. Reading books by the great mystics and physicists and cosmologists and philosophers, building up an understanding of reality through this approach. Such people, I think, are truly beautiful, and such a task is entirely necessary. So where are the limitations here? Well, they are limitations of thinking itself. Which is to say, there is only so far that you can think your way to truth and reality. At some point, you need to examine the very process of thinking itself. And you need to do this, phenomenologically, experientially, from within your own introspection. Which means, once you've read all your neuroscience and cognitive science and philosophy, you need to look at your very own thoughts, yourself, to study them and examine them. So this seems to imply meditation of some kind, and probably implies silence, and it probably implies reflexive awareness. And the point would be, if one does not recognise the limitations of reason and thinking, it's very likely that one will simply keep developing more and more refined conceptual understandings of reality that are always, in the final analysis, merely conceptual. That is, mere theory. And even though it's so, so important to do this, it's also so, so important to know that concepts of reality, theories of reality, are not reality itself. So knowing the limits of reason in this second sense is knowing this point. It is delicate and sublime and very profound. Okay, so at this point I've covered the need to respect formal or classical logic and I've talked about two very important limitations of reason. And I want to end the episode by sharing something that unfortunately I was never really smart enough to understand in the first instance. And this is called paraconsistent logic. I was lucky enough to study under one of the pioneers of this field, a wonderful philosopher by the name of Graham Priest. So whatever understanding of this I have, I really owe to watching these rather wondrous workshops on paraconsistent logic from his other students that were sort of taking place on the whiteboard. And bearing witness to this was kind of like watching a beautiful foreign language film without any subtitles. So. You know, you can kind of get a bit of it, but maybe not the real guts of it. So, big caveat here. I never actually formally studied it, and I don't really get it. I definitely couldn't teach it in a classroom. 
But I know enough to understand how precious and necessary this kind of logic is. Because it's a kind of logic that can handle contradictions and, as, it, as its name suggests, inconsistencies. It's a kind of logic that suggests, very radically, that in some cases there can be true contradictions. It actually flirts with the most central principle of classical logic, the principle of non-contradiction. And I think this is very important, because in life, situations arise in which contradictory things may get thrown together in a way which simply kind of works, or is somehow true, or valid, or plausible. And I think this is definitely so in many kinds of spiritual lives. So if we remain too firmly in the sphere of classical logic, so for example, we walk around more or less like a good barrister, beholden to the principle of non-contradiction in every moment, then we may miss many of the subtleties which spiritual life not only offers, but sometimes demands. And I cite you here the famous koans of the Rinzai school of Zen Buddhism. The logic of the koan really amounts to the claim that you must transcend ordinary logic by exhausting your ordinary logic. So, you know, this is the sound of one hand clapping. Those kinds of paradoxes. But outside of Zen, which is especially and overtly about sabotaging uh, barrister-type minds, I think many other interesting traditions and approaches also at heart boil down to going beyond even a very refined and subtle form of reason. So this is really an extension of the point I just made before, of knowing the limitations of reason. Paraconsistent logic is important for a slightly different reason. It is that our spiritual approaches and practices may involve having to handle inconsistent or even contradictory truths. So let me give you a controversial example. It emerges that a well-renowned guru or master or spiritual teacher has been caught engaging in various forms of misconduct. And unfortunately this happens all too frequently. I could cite some names, but let's not go there. Now let's say the guru did some bad stuff in his or her life. Now ordinary logic will be very good in pointing out the contradiction. X did a lot of Y, therefore he or she was a straight-up charlatan, pretending to be a guru but actually human all too human. Or it could go the other way. X did a lot of Y, but this was a demonstration of his or her mastery. Therefore, he or she was an out-and-out -out god or Buddha or saint or prophet. Ordinary conventions cannot be applied to such people. Very often, in many cases such as these, the discourse will follow those two roads. And there will often be a split right down the line. Some people saying he or she was an absolute fake, or was a true saint, breaking societal conventions in order to teach us to go beyond our various ordinary barriers. Now, in some cases, perhaps many or most of them, the evidence might well line up for one of those two possibilities. That is, 
ordinary logic is perfectly fine to handle the situation. But in some cases, it's possible that he or she may be both at once. That is, they did some bad stuff whilst also being a genuine guru or saint or spiritual master. So it's not an either or, but a both at the same time. So the problem is assuming mutual exclusivity between two propositions when in fact both can be true at the same time. And I think we often assume mutual exclusivity between two things when in reality there's simply far more nuance and subtlety and points of continuity between them. So the assumption of mutual exclusivity between two different things or systems or ideas is very often a bad or ungrounded assumption. So to take a classic example which I mentioned early on in the series, let's think about these two big chestnuts science and religion. When you take these as unified, generalized wholes, it's possible to treat them as mutually exclusive concepts and categories, which are then inherently contradictory. But actually, they simply don't exist as unified, generalized conceptual wholes. In reality, both are extraordinarily complex with long, messy histories in a myriad of different kinds of practices. So one may need a form of logic which is more subtle and able to handle that kind of complexity and inconsistency. So the practical point here is that reason doesn't mean we end up narrow and dry and, and fixed and stuck and unable to truly meet the messiness and inconsistencies of life. Only some forms of reason imply that. Others such as paraconsistent logic, are beautifully supple and fluid and able to handle multiple inconsistent truths and realities. So we don't have to fall into a kind of glib kind of romanticism or naivety to go to those places. We can take reason with us and put it to work. Right. So I think that's more than enough today. I probably should have mentioned this at the start, but when I began trying to live some kind of spiritual life, I did so on the basis of an associational fallacy that such a life is inherently distinct from reason and logic. And for a long while, I perfectly demonstrated confirmation bias to preserve that unfounded opinion and subsequently ate old sandwiches instead of feasts and banquets and buffets. But I eventually learned that reason is really a formidable ally, great friend to spiritual life. And I hope to have shown a little of why this is so in this episode. So thank you very much for listening and stay tuned for more podcasts at aratehouse.com.au.
not one thing that I will be doing.